Well, today, we're going back to Mark, the book of Mark. We started a series of the book of Mark about four years ago, and we're getting there. We've taken a few breaks, if you're new around here, four years to go through a book. We've taken quite a few breaks, but today we're returning to the book of Mark, which I've just titled this series, The Real Jesus. I love the book of Mark because it's of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are biographies, gospel means good news. Of the four, Mark is the shortest. I don't know how many of you like to, just show a hands in here, how many of you love to read? You're just, you're reading, you love to read, Okay. And how many, not so much? Okay, I'm in that group. I know it doesn't fit like the pastor profile where the pastor's supposed to like read, read the Bible for 18 hours a day or something. I, I'm more of a, a podcast guy, an auditory. I listen to the Bible a lot. I do read the Bible. I, I know how to read. Um, but, but my wife, she will just, I mean, she spends hours and hours just tearing through books and for me, I'm just not much of a reader, or at least a reader of, of longer pieces. I like shorter things, magazine articles. I like to get to the point. I sometimes wonder if some authors are paid by the page. Hmm? Some of you read those books, they're like, come on, let's, what's, what's happening here? Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels of Jesus. And he just gets right to the point. He doesn't mess around. And I want to say, before we look at our text today, that Jesus is what First Alliance is all about. We're not about religion. We're not about tradition. We're not even about the Bible for the Bible's sake. The purpose of the Bible, the purpose of the Scriptures is, is for one thing and one thing only. It's for us to know Jesus. So we don't worship a book. We don't even worship songs. I mean, we sing songs of worship, but the purpose of the songs is not just to sing. Some of you love to sing, some of you don't like to sing. It doesn't matter. They're not for you. I, I can't tell you how many people I've heard over the years, and they'll say, I didn't, I didn't get anything out of church today. I'm like, do you think everyone came for you? I mean, this idea of a worship service is that we're here to worship Almighty God, this isn't for you. This is a chance for all of us to serve him. So in Mark, he, he just gets right to the point. And, and we've been looking, like I say, over the last four years, on and off, we've been looking at the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, which are often in red in your Bibles. Some of your Bibles are red letter editions. But but what I want to know more than anything else, and what, what I want you to know more than anything else, is I want you to know Jesus. I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. I don't want you to just know trivia and facts about him. I want you to know him. I want him to be your best friend. You are your friends. Choose wisely, I told my kids when they were growing up. And if Jesus is truly your best friend, if you do life with Jesus eventually you're going to look like him. You're going to act like him. You're going to think like him. You're going to be like him. And with all due respect to every celebrity and, and athlete and famous person out there, I think the world needs a whole lot more Jesus than anything else. If we had seven billion people, seven and a half billion people that looked and acted like Jesus, our world would be so phenomenal. Can't even imagine it. 
So today we're going to look at a a really challenging passage, and I I just want to give you fair warning today. This is some really tough stuff. It hits me right in the gut. So when we're done, you might not like me. That's okay. I'm not, this isn't a popularity contest. I just want you to know Jesus, and I want you to hear what Jesus says. But before we dive into Mark, I want to talk for a moment about the Ten Commandments. You know, God's top ten list. How many of the Ten Commandments can you name? Those of you with paper or whatever, just maybe just, just jot down. How many, how many of the, the Ten Commandments can you name? We're not going to ask you to stand up. Don't, this is just between you and yourself. Why don't you think, like, how many, how many of those Ten Commandments can you name? People have made all sorts of big deals about the Ten Commandments in public spaces and whatnot. They're part of the Jewish Bible. The Old Testament. And they're found in Exodus chapter 20. They're actually found twice. But in Exodus 20, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You have to understand the context. The the Ten Commandments didn't just fall from the sky, although the mountain was pretty high where they they emerged. But the, the people were traveling. God was calling them out of Egypt to the promised land, the people of Israel the Jewish people. And God says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's command number one. No other gods. Now that sounds pretty simple to us. We don't live in a polytheistic culture, most of us. The context, the other nations had all sorts of gods, and they had temples to all these different gods, and it was pretty common to worship. And God's saying, no, just me. I want to be your only God. Sounds simple enough. He says, you may then not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So notice this, God's making a promise to those that, dishonor him, disobey. And then he says, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. How would you like to be a part of that thousand generations of people that love God and keep his commandments? So we've got no other gods. The second one, no other idols. We often think of idols as religious statues but it's anything that we love and we worship more than God. If you're keeping score, the the rest involve misusing the name of the Lord, Sabbath, honoring one's parents, and then the shall nots. Those are the ones we usually get pretty pretty good, the shall nots. You shall not murder, commit adultery, stealing, false testimony, and coveting. So no other gods and no idols. Now today our focus will be on these first two commandments as we look at Mark chapter 10. And if you have your Bibles, this would be a great time to turn to Mark chapter 10. As we get ready to go to Jesus's words, I want to ask you one question this morning. Are you rich? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. And of course, those of you online, I can't even see your hands. But I want to know, are you rich? Now, oftentimes when this question is asked in church, we think, well, I'm rich in love. 
In this country, we are rich in freedom. We've been given tremendous freedom and liberty. Maybe you would say, I'm very rich because of my family. I, I have wonderful children and grandchildren and or parents, grandparents, and I'm very rich relationally. We're all rich if you like snow right now. Just we've been we've been given so much snow this week. All my Canadian friends feel like they're home again. But I mean rich financially. Now, a lot, lot, lot of us, we think, well, I'm not, I'm not very rich. You know, they've been talking about the 1%. Uh, a few years ago, there was all this talk about the 1%. By the way, um, those wealthy 1% that are often demonized in the media, I just want to say that they create many jobs and opportunities as business owners. There's nothing in the Bible that says you should not be wealthy. To be in the top 1% in the U.S., you need to earn about $500,000 a year. For the record, this is not me. But here's the thing. To be, that's in the U.S. To be in the top, 10 per, or top 1%, the top 1% richest people on the planet, you need to earn about $60,000 a year. And I'm quite sure that applies to a whole lot of you. If you make $60,000 a year, you're in the 1% richest people on the planet. Now, again, not in the U.S., but worldwide. If you make $45,000 a year, you're in the top 2%. If you make $38,000 a year, you're in the top 3%. And get this, if you make $19,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. $19,000. Some of you got unemployment checks this past year that totaled more than that. You're in the richest 10% in the world. See, most of us are rich compared to the rest of the world, whether, you've, whether you're in the 1% in the U.S. or not. With blessings, come res- with, with blessings come responsibility and temptation. So we're in the 10th chapter of Mark, beginning at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this guy sounds sincere, right? He runs up to Jesus. He doesn't just walk, it says he runs. He runs up to him, falls on his knees, proclaims Jesus to be a good teacher, and asks what it takes to inherit eternal life. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Maybe the man realized that Jesus was God. Now, think for a moment what Jesus says here. Only God is good. Where does that leave us? See, we are all deserving of eternal punishment for our wicked deeds. None of us is perfect, and God's standard is perfection, which is why we're hopeless apart from Christ. You know the commandments. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. By the way, these are commands number six through nine if you're keeping score. And then he throws in, but you shall not defraud. He skips one through four. 
and he skips number 10 for now. Teacher, the man declares, all these I have kept since I was a boy, which is a, a pretty big statement, right? Now again, Jesus didn't list all 10, but of these, I've kept them all since I was a boy. I'm not sure I could say that, but this guy felt like he was kind of doing the right thing, or he was self-deceived. Let me, let me tell you a little secret. We tend to overestimate how good we are. And we tend to underestimate how good God is. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. I have to say, I always miss the beginning of the sentence. Jesus loved this man. It wasn't like he wanted to play with his mind or trick him. He wasn't trying to be snarky at all. Jesus just loves him. He looks at him and, and loves him. He, he has compassion for him. He wants what's best for this guy. Jesus loves sinners. And it's out of his love that he addresses this issue of the Ten Commandments, this issue of love for God and, and idols. N.T. Wright notes, he says, when Jesus says you will have treasure in heaven, he doesn't mean that the young man must go to heaven to get it. He means that God will keep it stored up for him until the time when in the age to come all is revealed. The reason you have money in the bank is not so that you can spend it in the bank, but so that you can take it out and spend it somewhere else. The reason you have treasure in heaven, God's storehouse, is so that you can enjoy it in the age to come when God brings heaven and earth together at last. And eternal life, as most translations put it, doesn't mean life in a timeless, otherworldly dimension, but the life of the age to come. The word eternal translates a word which means belonging to the age. So with this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And let me say to all of you again, if, if you make $19,000 a year, Compared to the rest of the world, you have great wealth. In fact, even if you make less than $19,000 a year, you, you're probably still up there. The rich young ruler had good feelings for God, but he loved his wealth more. The world says, hey, it's good that you have wealth, but it can become an obstacle. Do you possess money or does your money possess you? Think about that. Jesus looked around at his disciples and he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't say it's impossible. He says how hard it is. And I've seen a number of people lately writing about downsizing and eliminating clutter in their lives. This is kind of a trendy thing right now. Simplify. In fact, there's even this tiny house movement. I suppose if you've got a really tiny house that you can fit on the back of a trailer or something, some of you know what I'm talking about. You have to really get rid of stuff. You have to eliminate clutter and simplify. I think there's some benefits to simplifying. It's so easy to just get more and more stuff. And pretty soon it's like, what are we doing with all this stuff? I have a friend, and he's, he's right now in the midst of clearing out his basement and cleaning out all this stuff. And he told me, he said, I'm just trying to make it easier for my kids when I die. That's a smart man right there. 
The more we have, the more we must work to protect, to ensure, to store, to maintain. Some in our church family are homeless, which is not a popular or a comfortable position to be in, but there are certainly benefits to its simplicity. I have, a, I have a, a good friend, and everything just fits in his backpack, and that's his life. And he's not worrying about stuff breaking down. He's not worrying about a roof leaking or a, a tire going flat. His life is simple. As I often said, as I said, sometimes we demonize the rich as if their success is somehow evil, and perhaps it's actually envy that leads to people critiquing them. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is found in Proverbs 30. It says this, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Have you ever heard that expression, daily bread, before? Yeah, Jesus quoted it in that famous prayer, daily bread. Jesus, when he speaks of daily bread, is quoting the Proverbs written hundreds of years earlier in this passage in Proverbs 30. So give me only daily bread, the writer says, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The rich are tempted to feel secure in their wealth and ignore God. The poor are tempted to steal and to dishonor God. We are to pray for our daily bread. That God will give us what we need for today. And I know most of us have more than a day's worth of bread in our freezers and pantries and whatnot. We've, we've been blessed. We're among the richest people in the world. And some of you have known really difficult times. You've, you've experienced hardship. Maybe some of you are in that right now. You're like, I don't even have daily bread today. Maybe that's an invitation for you to spend time with God, getting on your knees and seeking after him and being desperate for him. See, one of the great problems we have in this country is most of us don't need God. We don't need to pray for our daily bread because we've got plenty. We don't need to pray for our sick bodies. We just call the doctor or go to the ER. We've been blessed with so many things, and yet sometimes those blessings actually keep us from God. They keep us from knowing God. They keep us from falling to our knees in desperation for God. Some of, the, some of the, the moments where I have felt most close to God have been when I'm most broken and desperate. I've shared this story before. That being in the, the middle of the darkest days, the, the, the darkest nine years of my life with a very sick child, just crying out to God. And when it looked like there was some light at the end of the tunnel, I had this real dilemma because on the one hand, I was so thankful that health was starting to emerge for my daughter. But on the other hand, I didn't want to lose that desperation for God. Maybe some of you have experienced this before. You're praying and you're praying and you're praying and you're just pleading with God, please help, help, help. And then God shows up and it's like, thank you. Okay, let's get busy again. And this is what I told God. I said, God, I want to I wanna change my petitions to praises. I want my, my urgings and my requests to you to be converted to thanksgiving and to worship. 
I don't want to get off my knees, but I would prefer that my language changes. I'm actually kind of in one of those seasons right now. And I've alluded to it earlier. God's been taking away and taking away and taking away. And now we're in a season where God seems to be giving and blessing and providing for us. And I, I've been telling a couple of people this past week, my prayers right now are so boring. They're so boring. But I'm praying. And I'm praying a whole lot these days. My prayers go something like this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so thankful at what God is doing, specifically at First Alliance right now. I mean, I'm just overjoyed. I look at Pastor Donald. Thank you. I think about this, this youth pastor that's going to join us. And I'm just overjoyed. Like, thank you, Lord. This is way more than anything that we ever expected. I mean, I, we were looking at just a part-time, you know, kind of place filler sort of thing. Uh, God's just given us so much more than we, we ever imagined. In fact, I was talking to Cain, one of our elders, and I had asked Cain several weeks ago, when we were first starting the process, I said, I said, I said, Cain, and I talked to some other youth families, but I said, well, what are you looking for in a, in a youth leader? And he, he gave me five things. And so after meeting our, our, our candidate, Cain said, you know, there, there's, there's one problem with this guy now that I've actually met him. He said, he, f he satisfies six of the five things that I was looking for. So I'm in this season right now of, of just, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Now, I know storms are going to come. They always do. But while the sun is shining, I'm getting out my sunscreen. I'm saying, thank you, Lord. But this is the way it works in our relationship with God. There are good days and bad days. And I've known some really, really, really hard times. And our, our church has known some hard times. And our staff has been through some really difficult times. But then God shows up. But here's the thing, family. When God answers your prayers, don't get off your knees. Don't get busy. Don't get, do your own thing. Stay on your knees and offer thanks and praise to God. He's worthy of praise in good times and bad. He's worthy of praise whether the sun's shining, the snow's falling, the hail's coming down, or as cloudy as anything. He's just always worthy of praise. It's just sometimes it's a little easier to, to articulate those when you know the weather's finally going to break freezing for the first time in several weeks today or tomorrow. Anyone excited about that? Daily bread. Daily bread. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' words. Back to Mark. But Jesus said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is such a sobering statement, especially for us in this country. Jesus is just calling out. He's saying, it's really hard, you rich people. It's hard. Because you don't need me. You're so busy with all your toys and screens and stuff. Who has time for God? We've got games to play. We got Netflix shows to binge watch. Jesus 
taught us to pray for his kingdom to come now on earth as it is in heaven. We don't walk on streets of gold, but the age to come is emerging here and now, sort of like a baby chick that's starting to poke through the egg. I know it's a, it's a tough thing right now. We're in this in-between. People talk about the kingdom of heaven. We're, you know, we're experiencing God's kingdom here on earth, but we read the paper and go, it doesn't look like God's kingdom here. God's kingdom is breaking forth, and we are a part of that. We are participants in what God's doing here and now. Imagine if the world didn't have followers of Jesus. It'd be a pretty bad place. I mean, it's bad enough with us. And parenthetically, sometimes we're part of the problem, but that's for another day. God's kingdom is breaking forth now. It's the now, but not yet. It's like a baby chick that is fully a baby chick poking through that eggshell. Is, is it a chick? Yeah, it's a chick. Can you hold it? Well, not yet. It's poking through. It's, it's sort of in process. We are kind of like that. We are in, in the egg, but we're trying to poke our way out. We're here on earth, but we're also welcoming God's kingdom. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? See, many in Jesus' day thought, if you were rich, that's a sign that God blessed you. You know, the rich, God must love them. He's blessing them with all this wealth. And the poor, God must be mad at them. It's far more nuanced than that. Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. We always like that phrase, you know, all things are possible. There's a good song Hillsong did years ago. All things are possible. All things are possible. But look at the context. Jesus is saying all things are possible with God, speaking of salvation, speaking of being a part of God's kingdom. It's all about salvation. It's about the rich entering the kingdom of God. We're saved by grace. It's a gift. And praise God we have hope because of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So then Peter spoke up and he said, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, I say to you, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. Yes, sometimes that comes with the package in this life. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What a promise. This life, 80 years or so, it's so short compared to eternity. Why are we so attached to the cares of this world, to the stuff of this world, when God's got something so much greater for us? God's kingdom is not of this world. It's the upside-down kingdom Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that anything we sacrifice for him will be worth it, both in the present age and in the age to come. He's inviting them in. He's inviting them to participate in the kingdom. He's saying there's so much good stuff for you, but you can't become obsessed with your wealth and your money and your idols and other gods and all those things. There's a price to pay for following Jesus, but it's worth it. So our favorite question. So what? Is money evil? No. No, money's not evil. Money's a tool used for centuries, a means of exchange. It can be used for good and for bad. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Timothy, 1 Timothy says. The love of money is dangerous. The love of money is so dangerous. 
for so many reasons. I mean, think about it. If you love money, you can lose it. It can be stolen. The stock market can do crazy things. We can have inflation. The love of money is dangerous, and it's one of the most common idols in our culture. Most of us just want more. In fact, I remember years ago hearing a millionaire who was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, he had millions, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. That's because money will never truly satisfy, especially if your goal is to hoard it. Contrast that with generosity. I remember years ago, I heard a man who said, it's my goal to make as much money as I possibly can and keep as little as necessary. See, he had a good view of money. He wanted money, but not for his own sake. He wanted to give it away. He wanted to serve others. He wanted to bless. He wanted to support ministries and activities. During my five years here at First Alliance, I've seen examples of radical generosity. I don't know how much people give, but I, I, I see the giving, just the totals. I have no idea who gives what. But I know we've got some really generous people at First Alliance, and I just want to say thank you. You know, the Bible talks a lot about a percentage. This word tithe means 10%. So technically tithe is 10%. Offerings, gifts is anything above that. In fact, when we were in Africa, they do this thing at church. I've thought about doing this. They put a basket up, up front, and, and they say, okay, everyone bring your tithes. And everyone gets in a row, and they all just come down, and they bring their 10%, and they, they drop it in the box in front of the whole church. And if you want to try this, because it gets better. And then they say, okay, now that's a 10%. Now, who has offerings above 10%? You all come down now and do that. And they're playing music and all this is going on. And they do this big parade and they're, they're putting their money in. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's a different experience. The point is this. We need to be generous people. We need to be generous people. Giving is a gift it really is a gift. It's, it's a joy to give. You know the expression, it's better to give than to receive. Giving is a gift. Several years ago, our family, we, we came upon some money because of an estate. And the first thing I, I wanted to do with that money is write some checks and to give, give money away, like to support churches and ministries. And I just remember writing these checks. I was like, wow, I've never written a check like this. This is great. This is so much fun to, to give away. I love giving to First Alliance Church. I remember years ago, my, my best friend said, it's my goal that the biggest check I write each month is to my church. I thought, well, that's, that's a good goal. And I began to do some math and started to work on that. And uh, I, I'm not saying this to boast. I'm just saying, the biggest check in our budget each month is to First Alliance Church. And I love to give. I love to, it's just a joy because I see what God's doing here. I love to support his work. And obviously I benefit from the work. Thank you. But it's a joy to give. Second Corinthians 9, 7. Uh, many of you know this. God loves a cheerful giver. It's, it's a joy to give. Because see, everything belongs to God, not just 10%. Some people say, well, I, I don't believe in tithing because that's not a New Testament principle. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Jesus made every, raised the bar on everything. You say, but I tell you, you say, 
the old law says 10%, but I tell you, you should be given way more than that. Some of you are like, oh, I can't do that. Columbus takes 7%, gang. Who knows how much the federal government takes? That's a good place to start, 10%. If, if you're not there, start with five. Start with one. Do something. Our, our, our uh, financial team came to me and they said, you know, we have some members in our church that didn't give a dime last year. I was like, what? Not a dime? Makes me wonder if, if maybe there are people in our church that have some really deep financial needs that they went the whole year without making any money at all. Here's the question, family. What idols are between you and God? This is going back to the Old Testament. No other gods, no idols. Money is probably the most common idol in our culture. Besides self. What idols are between you and God? Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Paul said to Timothy, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without control, brutal, not lovers of the good. It doesn't stop there. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Sounds like America. No other gods. No idols. No covetousness or greed. Perhaps that's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all your strength. As the music team comes up, we're going to close with a song. But I just want to ask you, you all know this, on our, on our money, it says, in God we trust. It, it wasn't always there, but it was, it was added to the money, I believe, in uh, the, the middle of the last century. Do we trust in, in God or we, do we trust in money? What is your foundation? What or who is your God? Who is your first love? Jesus talked about building our lives on the rock or on the sand. I promise you, if you build your life on money, it is the sand. And when the winds blow, the house is going to crumble. But if we build our lives on Jesus, he is the firm foundation that will never, ever fail.